Good morning, everybody. If you would please stand and turn to 2 Kings 5. We'll be reading the whole chapter. Now Naaman, captain of the host, the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed, and took with them ten talents of silver, and six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so, when Elisha the man of God had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go, and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away, and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand, and call on the name of the Lord and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farfer, Farper, rivers of Damascus, better than, any, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wish in them, and be clean? So he turned, and went away in rage. And his servants came near, and spake unto him, and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again, like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all, is, in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged them to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to the servant two mules burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimron, Rimon to worship there, and he leaneth on the, my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. 
And he said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Behold, my master hath spared Naaman this Syrian, and uh, in not receiving at his hands that which he brought. But as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. So Gehazi followed after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well, my master. All is well. My master hath sent me, saying, Behold, even now there be come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And Naaman said, Be content, take two talents. And he urged them, and bound bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments, and laid them upon, upon two of his servants, and they bare them before him. And when he came to the tower, he took them from their hand and bestowed them in the house, and he let the men go, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And he said, Thy servant went no whither. And he said unto him, Went not mine heart with thee, when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maidservants? The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. You may be seated. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's a good morning. It's a good morning. Amen? It's a good morning. You know what? We're going to pray. We're going to dive into God's word. And there's a whole lot here in 2 Kings, just like there is in every other book we've been covering to this point in the summer. And um, let's pray. Let's ask God to teach us. Let's learn from him this morning. Okay? Lord, you're the one who's made all things. Without you, Lord, where would we be? Even now as we speak, this morning, you are granting words to come forth as we offer up praise to your name this morning. You're the giver of life. You're the one who provides breath for each one here. You made us according to your word, but you also sustain us. You are the one that keeps us going. With each passing day, it is your strong hand that holds us up. Your grace ministers to us, enabling us to handle what's in front of us on any given day. And so, Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness. Today, Lord, we are making the journey through this book of 2 Kings. Lots of kings and kingdoms. Lots of murdering, plotting, scheming, jockeying for position, power, prestige. Lots of men and One woman scurrying around to claim a title. Very few, it seems, recognize where their strength comes from. And as a result, we see here in this book, kings fall. They get crushed. They're removed from office. Very few hold on to the commandments of the Lord. Very few seem interested in leadership by your book. And as a result... What we see in this book is division 
disarray, disunity, destruction of all kinds. Lord, I pray this morning you would allow us to hear from you, that you would teach us your holy word, that you would help us stay on the path of your commands. Sustain us, uphold us by your good word, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. As I read through the text of 2 Kings this week, and and how many of you, uh, I'm hoping that you did read, I won't have you raise your hand, but I'm hoping you read through 2 Kings this week in preparation. I'm reminded of the challenges that life sets before us each day as I read through this book. In an effort to live wholeheartedly for the Lord Jesus Christ, let me ask you this morning as we begin, do you find it more difficult to get started with God, to to begin walking in the path of God as outlined in the scriptures? Or do you find it, it's more difficult to sustain what's already been started? Do you find yourself crying out to God, help me stay on your path, Lord? Psalm 119, verse 35. I found it interesting in the New King James Version of verse 35, Psalm 119. It says, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Make me walk in the path of your commandments. In the Holman Christian Standard, it reads this way, the same verse. Help me stay on the path of your commands, for I take pleasure in it. So one translation speaks to getting you started down God's path. Make me walk. Make me walk. The psalmist, make me walk in this path. And the other translation really hits at, I think, the big idea of the verse. And that is, help me to stay. Help me to stay. I need your help to, to stay on the path of your commands. Not to stray. Second Kings reminds me that no matter what's going on, no matter the myriad of changes and transitions that are taking place, no matter the high level of turnover concerning the kingship, no matter what's going on, God sustains his people through it all. That's the big idea. God sustains his people through it all. He upholds his people with his righteous, strong hand. God sustains his people. Have you noticed that God's people, church, don't come pre-programmed for sustainability? How many of you have started something in the Lord and with good, you've had good intentions? uh, And usually January is one of those times when you try something new, you start something new. uh, You have great intentions of beginning something in the Lord. And maybe for a week or two, or maybe I'll give you the benefit of the doubt for a month or two. It's, it's going. It's, it's, it's moving. And then something happens. The, the sustainability factor in our lives oftentimes... You know, uh, someone said that the natural slide in our life is down. The, the natural bent, we go, it's, it's not up. We, we tend to slide down. That's the natural slide in life. And there's a lot of things we have to be aware of. There's certain disciplines, no doubt, that need to be in place. But I think about this text, and I think about 2 Kings. I think about what God says in this book. And I'm reminded of how God sustains his people, even in our 
woeful inadequacies. I was reminded of the teams and organizations that achieve victory and success together over a long period of time. I was asking, what is it that leads to this consistent, long-term victory? How is it that at some workplaces, they continue to crank out high levels of success and others don't? I was reminded in history of of that man, John Wooden, who coached the UCLA men's basketball team in the 60s and 70s, running together 10 NCAA championship teams and, get this, four undefeated seasons. Or Don Shula coached the Miami Dolphins in what is to this day, I believe, still the only NFL team to go undefeated in an entire season in 1972. At the high school level, De La Salle High School in Concord, California, won 151 straight football games. 13 state championships. Here close to home in Carmel, Indiana, Carmel High School achieved a streak of 31. It's still going on. 31 consecutive seasons of winning Indiana High School State Swimming and Diving Championships. 31 back-to-back seasons, get this, five different coaches... Certain teams, certain companies, certain organizations have posted long-term victories in their respective fields. The players and the parts of the teams, maybe they've changed over the time, but the results have remained consistent. Victories, successes in whatever realm, endeavor they are part of, have filled the stat sheet. But what is it that allows a team, an organization, a church even... To excel for such a great length of time. You know what the 72 Dolphins team was a a pretty amazing thing. But what that high school girls swimming and diving team has done. Is even in my mind more remarkable. Over the course of 31 straight years. And with five different coaches. They've won. They've had success. If If you read and have read 2 Kings this week. You saw with your own eyes the the volatile nature of the kingship. Especially on the side of Israel. Amen? Especially. Israel, one one writer says, an average reign for an Israelite monarch was but ten years. With nine different ruling families laying claim to the throne. Seven kings were assassinated in Israel. One committed suicide. One was stricken by God. One was deposed to Assyria. Flip the scorecard over, if you will, and look at Judah. The average reign for a king in Judah was 17 years. Queen Athaliah is the only interruption to the Davidic succession. There's two ruling families in Judah. Five were assassinated... Two were stricken by God. Three were exiled to foreign lands. Second Kings continues the account of First Kings. Much like Second Samuel continues the account of First Samuel. And the highlight of the book here shines on, guess who? The kings. That's the name. So we get, we get the, the spotlight on these kings... 
And as kingship is handed over from one king to the next, oftentimes in bloody, deceitful fashion, one of the things that we see comes very clearly as we look at this kingship is that these kings, these kings are looking at and are experiencing something that I believe as we, as we get into the text and as we look at what the text says, there's this gauge of the king's life. Is he a moral king or is he an immoral king? The writer seems very concerned about giving us that information with each one of the kings. For example, in 2 Kings 18 verse 3 in regard to Hezekiah... He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Now, David wasn't Hezekiah's father, but he was uh, the, the one that we'll see. He, he's sort of the marker for all of those kings that follow in the line of Judah, isn't he? Or what about this one in 2 Kings 13, verse 2, as it pertains to Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu? He did evil. In the sight of the Lord, and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So, so what the writer does here in this text is he shapes for us, the, the reader, an understanding of the king's morality. Did he do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or did he do evil? Did he pattern himself according to the commandments of God and follow in the ways of a godly pattern David? Or did he pattern himself according to wickedness and follow in the ways of the ungodly pattern, which is oftentimes set forth as Jeroboam in Israel, or as we find out later, Manasseh in the life of Judah. The writer is giving us a snapshot of the pattern. How did this king operate and lead the nation over the course of his reign? We have, in this book, we see kings reigning from seven days in Zimri to 55 years. In Manasseh. I, I tend to believe those were 55 long years. And we'll talk a little bit more about Manasseh here in just a moment. So the big idea. God sustains his people. He upholds them. He, he carries them along. He supports them. He bears them up. He's the one putting the right people in place at just the right time to accomplish the exact thing needed to further his kingdom purposes. Psalm 119, verses 116 and 117. The psalmist says, Uphold me according to your word that I may live. Do you get that? Uphold me according to your word that I may live. The psalmist comes to understand that unless God is upholding him, unless God is sustaining him, his life is in the balance. That I may truly live. That I may truly have life. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. He goes on and says, hold me up. Hold me up. That's, that's a pretty vivid phrase. You think of someone who's standing and, and needs someone else to hold him up. Hold me up and I shall be safe. And I shall observe your statutes continually. Sustain me, says the psalmist. So, so this morning, really thinking about the question from the text, from the book of 2 Kings, what's 
it take to sustain godly living? Remember, we're not after just getting on the right path. That's a start, for sure. We're after sustainability. Lord, help me stay on your path all the way to the end. The, the idea there, again, of sustaining is to bear, to, to uphold, to support, as pillars would sustain a building. God sustains his people. He holds them. He carries them along. He sustains his people through his word, through his son, and what his son did and accomplished at the cross, and through the power and comfort of the Holy Spirit. What's it take today to sustain a life characterized by walking with God? And how do you get from being a starter who fizzles out to a finisher who glorifies God all the way to the finish line? Is godly living sustainable generationally? Amidst change, amidst new leadership, transitions in life, how do you sustain vibrancy and passion in your relationship with God? How do you keep it going? I want us to look at the beginning here at four examples in 1 Kings. And up front, I'd like for us to see what it is that keeps us, what what is it that keeps us from long-term sustainability? What holds us back from staying on God's path, continually walking in God's ways long term. All right, so to the text we go. Here's the first one. And, and each of these examples are going to come. By way of one of the people here in 2 Kings. Ahaziah, 2 Kings chapter 1. Chapter 1. You remember the story, Ahaziah has an accident. He's put up in bed, right? He falls through the lattice in his upper room. We have no idea what was going on. Don't know if he was drunk. Don't know if if he was playing around with some of his buddies up there and something happened. Something, he fell out of the lattice in his upper room and he's put up in bed. That's what we've got. He's injured. And since he's injured, he's curious to know if he's going to recover. So he sends a group of his messengers to go get an answer. As to whether he's going to recover from his injury or not. And, and where does he send them? He says in verse 2 of chapter 1. Go inquire of Beelzebub. The God of Ekron. Now here's the first principle I want us to get here in the life of Ahaziah. You can't sustain life on God's path when you neglect God. You can't sustain life on God's path. If you want to walk on God's path, if you want to keep traveling on God's path, you can't travel that path when you neglect God. God hears the words from Ahaziah, and what's he do? He immediately sends Elijah the prophet. And the bottom line to the message God gives Elijah is this. The king is going to die. The king hears the words from his messengers that Elijah has spoken, and and he wants to have a word himself with Elijah. And so he sends these three groups of 50. Remember the story? You remember what happens? Two of the groups get consumed with fire. Elijah then stands before the king and speaks the same word he delivered to the messengers earlier. And it goes like this. Is there no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall surely die. 
Now, some might ask, why the destruction of all the messengers that come? I believe that this is a message from God to let Ahaziah know there is a God in Israel. How dare you neglect such a mighty sovereign and awesome God? Beware, friends. You might attend church, church gathering regularly. You, you might read your Bible regularly. You might do some good deeds. But how quickly it can happen, a derailment, spiritually speaking, when you neglect God. Ahaziah is deemed a bad king on paper, right? He's one of the bad kings. But he is a king of Israel. A king serving under the faithful covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ahaziah had an accident. He got hurt, and he wanted to know what would become of his injury. And his first course of action was to turn to the God of Ekron. Listen, when you're looking for direction and understanding, you're looking for wisdom on a situation, where do you turn? You cannot sustain godly living when you neglect the God of heaven. I believe it's helpful for us to put into practice the words of the psalmist. Let your hand become my help. Psalm 119, 173. God, let your hand become my help. May that be a pattern in our life that we ask of the Lord and we go to the Lord. Here's example number two. What keeps us from staying on God's path? This was the chapter that was read this morning from 2 Kings 5. You can turn to chapter 5. The life of Gehazi. Naaman is the commander of the army of Syria. He's a mighty man of valor. But in this chapter, we see he has leprosy. And there's a servant girl that was from Israel, and she tells Naaman's wife of this man of God in Israel. And this man of God is Elisha. Elijah passes on in the whirlwind chariot fire in chapter 2. We're now in chapter 5, and Elisha is on the scene. And Elisha instructs Naaman to wash seven times in the Jordan. A bit reluctant at first... Naaman is. But he eventually obeys the instruction. Washes in the Jordan. He's healed of his leprosy. He returns to Elisha offering him gifts. Grateful for his healing. And Elisha says, I will receive nothing. In fact, the text says he refused. Naaman is not only healed of his leprosy, but the account goes on to tell us that he's changed on the inside as well. He's forsaking the other gods that he used to worship. From this point forward, it's the Lord only. And it's a big praise to the Lord. But the text doesn't end there, does it? You see, it's right here in the midst of this moment of praise over not only the physical healing, but the spiritual healing, Naaman now has eyes to see. 
that Gehazi enters into the picture. Look at verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman, this Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. The text gives us not a conversation here between Gehazi and some other person. The text gives us what Gehazi is saying right here and what he's thinking right here. You can't sustain life on God's path when you lust after the flesh. That's the principle we see here in Gehazi. Gehazi, listen, he hung out with Elisha of all people to hang around and get a snapshot of. He hung around Elisha. Do you think he saw a good example? I do. Do you think he saw fear of God? Do you think he saw God show up in Elisha's life and use Elisha and those around? I do. Instead of learning contentment from Elisha, he decides to lust after the desires of his flesh. Greed gets him, doesn't it? Selfish desires went out. And he pursues what he wants. Now, verse 22 of chapter 5 is, is a, just a pack of lies. Is all well? Listen to what Gehazi says. All is well. My master has sent me. Is that true? No. Indeed, just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Is that true? No. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And Naaman gladly gives to him. You know, one of the things that's tragic in this passage in 23 and 24 is that Gehazi actually involves some of his servants in his own selfish gain. He pulls pulls these servants alongside of him to carry the stuff and then to bring it into the house. Verse 24 tells us then he tries to hide it. He stores it away in the house. And then he lets those servants of his go. And then you get to 25. Now, Gehazi went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. True or false? False. Lie again. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants, 
Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. You can't sustain life on God's path when you follow the lust of the flesh. That's the principle. Here's example number three. What keeps us from staying on God's path? What is it that keeps us? We had Ahaziah. This one's a little different. Amaziah is the third one I want to talk about here. Go to chapter 14 in the text. Amaziah. As you go to chapter 14, if you know your kings, you know that Amaziah, in some instances, is, is labeled a mostly good king. Mostly good. You know, sometimes these kings are, are starting out good and they end bad, or vice versa. They get a little bad, a little good. Mostly good is the label that's tend to given to Amaziah. And it's true, the text says in chapter 14, verse 3, that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. Therefore, you get the mostly good, right? Amaziah is a king, listen, Amaziah is a king who tasted victory. But Amaziah was a king who wasn't content with a victory. Amaziah wanted a little bit more success. Look at verse 7. The text tells us he killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And took Selah by war and called its name Jokthiel to this day. In the margin I just put success. He, he had some success on the battlefield. Look then at verse 8. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel. Saying, come, let's face one another in battle. And I'm saying it like I think it was probably communicated. Come on. I'm ready. The interesting thing here from Jehoash in verses 10 and 11. Or 9 and 10. Jehoash, by the way, is, is, is considered an evil king. But his words are words of wisdom here. He, he shares in the first part of that, in verse 9, this little parable. And then he cuts to the point in verse 10. You have indeed defeated Edom. And your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that and stay at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah, with you? Very next verse. But Amaziah would not heed. Verse 12, Judah was defeated by Israel. You can't sustain life on God's path when your heart is lifted up. Sustainability on God's path isn't going to be a reality when your heart is lifted up. We call it pride, don't we? 
It can creep in on the heels of success. It can knock you off God's path. It can set you backward. It can, in, in, in Amaziah's case, even set back those under your care. The whole nation of Judah was defeated, ransacked. The wall was torn down in part. They came in and pillaged the place. Why? Because there was one guy who thought he could take Israel. I had success over here, therefore I can do it all. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Do you know by definition what an abomination is? If something is an abomination of God, it means it's something he hates, right? Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to God. Proverbs 17, 19, he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low. Proverbs 16, 18, the one we're probably most familiar with. Pride goes before what? Destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Scripture's full of, of this line of thought about our pride and the results of being proud. You want to keep going in God's ways long term? You can't sustain life on God's path when your heart is lifted up, when pride leads the way. The principle from Scripture is one, is that the one who is proud in heart is going to be set low. A fall is coming. Destruction is near. So I believe it's a warning here for us to take heed, to learn. Learn how to operate when success and victory comes. It's something David himself failed in. 2 Samuel chapter 11. He was... Supposed to be where? On the battlefield. Just come off success. Just come off victory. And in this particular day of being out where the kings were supposed to be, where's David finding himself? He's at home. And he falls. Let me give you one more example from 2 King. What is it that keeps you from staying on God's path? Turn to chapter 21. Manasseh. Manasseh. He's 12 years old when he begins reigning. Reigns for those 55 years. But by the way, because we have Manasseh at 55 years of reign, we can know for certain that there's no correlation between good kings reigning longer than bad kings. Amen? 55 years. Long time. Son of Hezekiah, too. That's a head scratcher. Right? Look with me in chapter 21. I want to begin reading in verse 2. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. There's his morality piece. An evil king, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab king of Israel had done. Was Ahab a good king or a bad king, church? Bad king, evil, wicked king of Israel. He did exactly like Ahab. He worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. 
Also, he made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. There's a a picture for you of Manasseh. And the principle is this. you, You can't sustain life on God's path when you practice doing what God hates. When you practice doing what God hates, it's not going to be sustainable. Life on God's path. You you can't have life on God's path and continue to do the things God hates. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 gives us a list of things that God hates. There's probably a few on this list that Manasseh embraced and participated in during his 55 years of reign. A proud look, what do you think? Lying tongue? How about hands that shed innocent blood? How about a heart that devises wicked schemes? Or feet running to evil? False witness who speaks lies? Or one who sows discord? Any of those you think fit Manasseh? Yeah, multiple ones. God hates sin. Amen? He hates it. You know, when you go back to uh, 1 John, there, there's some interesting verses in, in the third chapter of 1 John that help us here. And verse 9 says, Whoever has been born of God does not keep on sinning, for his seed remains in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So, so one of the questions that comes out in 1 John 3 is, are you practicing righteousness or are you practicing sin? And, and I love what he says, do not... Be deceived. Let no one deceive you, he says in verse 7. And the text says that Jesus was manifested to take away our what? Sins. And it goes on and says that in Jesus, in Christ, in him there is no sin. Therefore, whoever abides in Jesus does not keep on sinning. Sustainability, long term on God's path. It can't happen when you're doing the things that God hates. Turn back to 2 Kings. This time look at chapter 24. This is near the end of the book. Chapter 24. I want you to notice at the beginning here in verse 2. The Lord sins against Jehoiakim. Who's at the time the one on board is king. The Lord sends against him raiding bands of Chaldeans and Syrians and Moabites and Ammonites. Notice in verse 2 it says, He sent them against Judah to destroy it. And some of them might think, well, wait a minute, aren't these God's people? Why is he destroying them? Look at verses 3 and 4. It gives us the why. 
Surely at the commandment of the Lord this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of whom, church? Manasseh. Because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of the innocent blood he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with his innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. You can't sustain life on God's path when you practice doing what God hates. These are four examples that we see in 2 Kings of what keeps us from staying on God's path long term. I'd like us now to turn the tables. Let's look on the positive side and let's ask the question, what does 2 Kings have to teach us about sustaining a walk with the Lord? What are some examples we see in 2 Kings? I want to give us four examples that serve to nurture our sustainability factor with the Lord. Okay? So, again, to the text, let's go. We'll come over here. In fact, this first one, I'm actually going to put two names because both of these names uh, tie into the same principle. Elisha and Hezekiah. We're going to put them on the same line. 2 Kings chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 6, and then with Hezekiah, 2 Kings 19 and 20. In chapter 4 of 2 Kings, we see this Shunammite has a, a son who has died, right? And Elisha returns with her to the house. And upon entering the house, what's the first thing that Elisha does? He prays to the Lord. A few chapters later, there's an army that's pressing in and Elisha's servant wakes up. And he says, alas, my master, what are we going to do? He sees all these armies around him. The text tells us in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Elisha prayed, Lord, I pray, open his eyes, that's my servant, that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And what did he see? Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, what's Elisha do? Elisha prayed to the Lord and he said, strike this people, I pray, with blindness. Sort of an odd prayer request. Not one that's typical, not one we typically put forward on a Sunday morning for sure. But he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Elisha prayed. Turn to chapter 19. Hezekiah, upon hearing the news of Sennacherib approaching, tears his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth. He's, and, then, and then the text says he went into the house of the Lord. Skip forward to verse 14. A second time he receives a report. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. There's the pattern. He went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, verse 15. And 15 through 19 is that wonderful prayer from Hezekiah. You are God, you alone, you've made the heavens and the earth. Hear the words of Sennacherib, verse 19. I pray, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth See, this is an important part of Hezekiah's prayer. It's his motive for praying. Lord, answer this prayer. 
to bring glory to you that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. One chapter later in chapter 20, Hezekiah receives news from Isaiah that he's to set his house in order, that he is about to die. And the text then says that he prayed to the Lord, verse 2, about this situation. And the Lord hears the prayer and extends Hezekiah's life by 15 years. And so what we have here are examples in Elisha and Hezekiah, how they model a life of prayer. Consistent, heart-pouring, passionate prayer to God. They know where to turn. They spread it before the Lord. There's a practice in their life, a habit, much like Daniel, the man who comes a little bit later, who when he found out the decree was made, what did he do? In Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, he went home as was his custom. He prayed. Elisha and Hezekiah lived their lives in an awareness that they could take anything, big or small, to God and that he would hear from heaven, that he would answer them. You want to stay the course in God's ways? I can't think of anything greater than ongoing prayer with your Father in heaven. Stay in the course. Take it to the Lord in prayer. The hymn writer says, Oh, what needs we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not what? Carry everything to God in prayer. Staying connected with God in prayer, wanting to know His will and His way. This will keep you grounded and guided along His path. And so many are gliding through this life, failing to turn their eyes upon Jesus, failing to fix their eyes upon the author and perfecter of the faith, and they end up down this dead-end road and they wonder why. And I believe it might have a whole lot to do with an absence of prayer. Ongoing prayer with the God of heaven is a sign, church, of relationship. You desire to meet with him in the normal day-to-day activities of life. You take your concerns to him and you listen to what he has to say to you from his word, through his Holy Spirit. Well, what else, in addition to prayer, nurtures our sustainability factor with the Lord? Here's the second one. This may surprise you, perhaps, in that it's not a king. It happens to be a high priest. Jehoiada. Athaliah, this is 2 Kings chapter 11, by the way, in the text. Athaliah is the mother of Ahaziah, king of Judah. She's also the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. Bad king, Omri. When Ahaziah is killed, Athaliah conspires and comes up with this idea to get rid of all the royal heirs. That's chapter 11, verse 1. She kills all of them but one. One is preserved from the wickedness of Athaliah, and his name is Joash. And for six years, he's hidden with a nurse named Jehoshaphat in the house of the Lord. Think about that, moms. For six years, this young man, Joash, is hidden in the house of the Lord. At the age of seven, Joash is in no position to fend for himself against Athaliah. Enter Jehoiada the priest. He courageously brings together some of the guards and shows them the king's son... Joash. And he commands them of their duties 
to oversee this young boy. He makes a covenant with them, in fact. To protect him at all costs. In fact, the text says he brought out the king's son. Verse 12. Put the crown on him. This is another thing, by the way, I love about Jehoiada. And gave him the testimony. Gave him the law. It, it ought to catch our attention because there, there aren't very many kings. There aren't very many reigns and rulers that take up the law. That seem all that interested in doing it according to God's way. They made him king, verse 12. Now, as you might imagine, Athaliah is not too crazy about this fanfare over a seven-year-old boy. But she has very little to say, it seems, in the text at this point. Jehoiada is calling the shots, doing for Joash, listen, doing for Joash what he couldn't do at the age of seven. He has Athaliah executed and Joash begins reigning. Look at verse 17. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people. I love this next line. That they should be the Lord's people. Whose people? The Lord's people. A covenant that they should be the Lord's people. We've been reading from Genesis through this point. Here's here's the challenge here in the text. Aren't these already the Lord's people? These are the Lord's people. But... From what Jehoiada has to say here, it leads us to believe that the people hadn't been acting and operating like the Lord's people for quite some time. A covenant. And also between the king and the people. Jehoiada was one of those men who helped Joash do what is right. In fact, look at chapter 12, verse 2. Jehoash, or Joash, he's also known, he's known by both of those names. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but listen to what it says. All the days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. And the Chronicles account will bring out what happens when Jehoiada dies. Joash doesn't continue doing what's right. Praise God for men like Jehoiada, bold, courageous people who step out in faith to show kindness, to serve, to bless. Have you ever had someone like Jehoiada show up in your life? Someone who served you, someone who showed favor to you, perhaps for reasons that you're not even aware. All you know is that this person stepped in at a moment in your life to carry you, to do for you what you couldn't do, serving your best interests in the Lord. Listen, when you serve others in the Lord, thinking about how to minister to others, how you might honor and prefer one another above yourself, your service to others is a means of nurturing your sustainability factor. Your service to others. So not just prayer, but we see with Jehoiada, it's his service, his life of service to this particular King Joash. It's just like our Lord. For our Lord came not to be served, but to what? But to serve. Here's the third example. In addition to prayer and service to others, let's look at the life Of Josiah. I know some of you were probably 
waiting. When's Josiah going to pop up on the board? Josiah's got to be on this list somewhere. A whole lot could be said about this particular king, but we'll confine it to this one point. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, that would be age 26. By the way, in the text, uh, we see Josiah pop on the scene in chapter 22. You can turn there. He commissions workers to put the house of the Lord in order. And Hilkiah, who is the high priest at the time, discovers something pretty big. He says to Shaphan, the scribe, he says, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. I found it. I found it. What's that mean? What's that tell us? It's, not been, it's been lost. It's been on the shelf somewhere. It's not been used. I found it. Josiah receives word and he hears the words read from the book of the law. He is immediately touched core of his heart by what the word says and in 2 Kings 23 he gathers all of the people look what he does chapter 23 verse 2 he went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah with him and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem the priests the prophets all the people small and great everybody come on everybody and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenants which had been found in the house of the Lord Verse 3, then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes. Isn't this refreshing to read this, church? This is so refreshing in light of some of the other kings and some of the other stories we've read with some of these. He was going to keep it with all of his heart and soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. That's the end of verse 3. You want to stay the course of God's ways? Josiah lived the remaining 13 years of his life by God's book. Sustainability, listen, sustainability on the path of God is predicated upon obedience to his word. Obedience to his word. Chapter 23, verse 21 king commanded all the people at this time saying keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. What a breath of fresh air. We're going to keep the Passover. Why? As it is written. Okay. See, what happens when the word gets in you? We see this in Josiah. It convicted him, didn't it? It convicted him. The word's living. The word's powerful. The word transforms you. The word brings life to thirsty, barren souls. The word is the power of God to salvation. This is the word which comes to one uh, which is, is labeled or deemed saving faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing God's word. That's the saving faith. Hearing his word. In his book, Counsel Fit for a King, author Mike Baker says, Josiah knew that the words of this newly discovered covenant book meant life to the people. 
Josiah, he says, stands out among the kings as one dedicated to the word of God. He was apparently a great godly leader for 18 years, simply following the words of prophets and what spiritual advisors led him to believe as God's will. But it wasn't until he found this book and he began to live by it that he truly became an exceptional leader for God. Have you found this word of God, friends? Have you found it for yourself? You come here on Sunday and you get to hear another man preach the word. But I'm asking, have you found this word? Have you found it? Every single one of you here. Have you found this word to be true for yourself? Have you received it and soaked it in? Do you see it as the word of God revealed to you for life? Some of you have copies of this book lining your bookshelves. I'm telling you, this book has power to change your lives and those around you. What are you doing with this word? It's time as people found it for themselves, opened it up, embraced it to be true, started living it. I'd like to give you one more example. In 2 Kings a, a picture of what can sustain you in God's path in these days ahead. Perhaps you'd miss this one if we're not careful. Really, it's sort of, a, this is not a name you would probably guess on the list. At the beginning of the week, I wouldn't have put this guy on the list. Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin. Some of you are immediately going, well, he's a bad king. How did he make that list? Look at chapter 25. In the 37th year of Jehoiachin's captivity, 37th year, Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in that year he began to reign, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. By the way, prior to this, we see the fall of Jerusalem. Chapter 17 is another pivotal part in 2 Kings. It's the fall of Israel, right? They fall to Assyria. Chapter 25 is the fall of, Jer- of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem's taken. Babylonians come. Now we're at the end of the book. This is the last thing the writer wants us to get as we close the window on 2 Kings. Notice Jehoiachin is released from prison. Notice that the king speaks kindly to him. Notice that he gives Jehoiachin a more prominent seat than those kings who were with him in Babylon. Notice Jehoiachin changes his clothes from prison garments to a regular seat behind and beside royalty. He eats the best of food. The king provides a portion for each day. All the days of his life. Second Kings, friends, closes with hope and it grants us a window into sustainability down God's path. What keeps us going in God's ways long term? I believe we see it as this book closes. It's grace. Grace. Loving kindness. His favor. Did Jehoiachin deserve to be released from prison? No. 
Did Jehoiachin deserve to be fed regularly from the king's table? No. Did Jehoiachin live an extraordinary life for the Lord during his reign in Judah? No. Did Jehoiachin deserve his change of garments? No. Here's the beauty of it. Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I love this next phrase. I've got new appreciation for next, the next verse, verse 6. And raised us up together. Here it is. And made us sit together. We get to sit with Christ. In fact, positionally it's already happened. Sit together. And I'm thinking about Jehoiachin. Guess who he got to sit next to? He got to sit next to the king of Babylon. Why? Because he was such a good person? No. Had nothing to do with him being a good person. Had everything to do with grace. We see this picture right here. That in the ages to come, he raised us up, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his what? His grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God sustains his people, church. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, sustain me as you promised and I will live. Sustain me so that I can be safe and be concerned with your statutes continually. We've sung the chorus before. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's what? Something about that name. What's, what's the song getting at? Who's the name? The name is Jesus, isn't it? What about Jesus? What about his name? God continues to sustain and uphold his people yet today through the death and resurrection of his son. The name, the name that's highly exalted, Philippians chapter 2. The name, as you look in the book of Hebrews, this is wonderful to understand and get. As Hebrews opens up, God at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and here it is, and upholding all things by the word of his power. You see, this God that we serve upholds all things through his son by the word of his power. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke everything into being. the end of the book of Hebrews, you read this line in chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You want someone in your life who has a track record of sustainability over the long haul? Jesus Christ, friends. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. 
all those streaks I talked about at the beginning, those teams, 151 straight games, 31 consecutive seasons, those are remarkable feats. None of them. In fact, all of them pale in comparison to what Christ has done. It's easy to get lost in the vast number of kings over the course of 450 years plus of history. There's much to learn here through study of the history of God's people. Patterns to make note of, walk away from, patterns to highlight and incorporate in your own life as the Lord leads. In 2 Kings, God is showing each one of us how to sustain a life with Him. How does this happen? How does this work? God is the one who upholds His people. He carries them along. He lifts them up out of the miry clay. He's the one who sets their feet upon the rock and moves them forward. God's word in 2 Kings puts forth warnings what to look out for and in some cases flee. And in the days ahead, as you pursue godly, sustainable living in Christ, he's the one who goes with you. He's the one who's working in you as you're working out your salvation. We see in this book of 2 Kings, he's showering us with abundant blessings and he's providing for us patterns of godliness in the midst of, listen, in the midst of a context of a divided kingdom. And in this book, we see key principles for how we can stay. With Elisha and Hezekiah, prayer. With Jehoiada, service to others. With Josiah, uh, obedience to the word. And with Jehoiachin, we see that portrait of grace. Marvelous grace. Wonderful grace of Jesus. If you haven't done it lately, church... Perhaps it's a good time to praise the Lord today for his ongoing, sustaining work in your life. Let's pray. And as I pray, perhaps this is a prayer that each one of us can be praying. Help me stay on the path of your commands, Lord, for I take pleasure in it. May your testimonies be my heritage forever and may they serve as the rejoicing of my heart. See that my heart is inclined, Lord, to perform your statutes forever to the very end. Sustain me, Lord. Carry me forward in your ways and fill me with your words as I go. Have thine own way, Lord, in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.